Welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark, and today I am so delighted to be joined by a writer who is whisking us back to our childhoods and who has already had plaudits from no less writers than Jacqueline Wilson and Marianne Keyes. When Lucy Mangan was little, stories were everything to her. They opened up new worlds, they cast light on all the complexities she encountered in this one. And now, as an adult, she's written about the experience of reading as a child. Welcome, Lucy. Lucy Mangan, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. We've really fought across the snowy wastes, haven't we? We have. What better thing to do than if forced by the beast from the east into retreat in one's home than to pick up a book. All bookworms love the snow. They look like, I don't have to go out. I've always thought we should have one of those traditions like they have in the Nordic countries where they just give people books all the time, don't they, to read in the dreadful weather. They're so civilised in the Nordic countries, (laughs) aren't they? They're They're all about blankets, candles and books. I mean, why are we not there? Why are we Why not are there? We here? Because we've been summoned to the to the podcasting room of Vintage Towers, and we're going to talk about Bookworm. It was your publication day yesterday. It was, and I've seen already so many people just reveling in this unashamed love of books. For people who don't know anything about Bookworm yet, the title gives us a good clue. But you tell us what the book is about. Uh, it's it's my love letter to childhood reading, really. It's sort of a memoir. It's got my sort of family stuff in there, um, but mostly my books, who are my family. Uh, and it just goes through from sort of the earliest picture books I remember, my dad especially, reading to me, and then all the way through to, you know, first book, The, the, uh, the Owl Who's Afraid of the Dark, and then on to, obviously, Enid Blyton gets her own chapter. Um, but all, hopefully... All your favourites, like The Family from One End Street, Sig of the Dumps, Secret uh, Secret Garden, all of that, and a few other, you know, different ones for me. Uh, and then Sweet Valley High, and then on to Judy Bloom, and then out, obviously, to start, and then we start to go towards adults, and then I lose interest and stop writing. <laughs> so this was something you loved doing from a really early age. You yes, loved I, to read. I, I don't remember not liking reading. I don't remember learning to read, because I could read before I went to school, because I remember Dad teaching me sort of from flashcards and then yes as soon as I could I was uh, away. Picture books first tell us a bit about some of your favourites. It's strange about picture books because my actual real 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 memories are very few of picture books obviously when you when you pick them up again you somehow know them and there's some kind of osmosis thing has gone on and they've lodged in your memory anyway and as soon as you pick them up for your child or um Godchildren or whatever, you go, oh yes, and he's a little, and then I remember that, that green and that, and then the holes, oh yes, the holes, <laughs> and it all comes rushing back to you. Yes, I remember one called Are You My Mother. Do you remember that Don't book? That a baby bird falls out of its nest. Its mother is frantically yes. looking for it, but it just keeps going up to other things, <laughs> including inanimate objects, <laughs> like a digger, and asking if it's like that. For some reason, this utterly sort of poignant I mean all these things kind of run through childhood books don't they some very inappropriate themes you know like Baba for example Baba mm. the elephant watching his mother be shot by hunters 
and that just stays with you, doesn't it? I know. It's, it's we've all got our our Bambi within the pages. You know, <laughs> multiple times. It's all it's crazy, really. Do you remember Richard Scarry? Was Richard Scarry an important yes, part of your life? Richard Scarry, and again, that was one really when I started reading them to my son. I was like, oh, Lowly Worm! I'd completely forgotten about Lowly Worm, and there he was, suddenly whoosh back to me, and all these little tigery face, foxy faces, and doggy faces. And being rescued from burning buildings, and you go, oh my goodness! You're and right. Now you can take them all in because, of course, they're such busy books. You actually mm. really need to be an adult. You really, to yeah, take you do, them don't in. you? That that was a sort of genius, wasn't it? Mm. That you can read them very happily as an adult. Um, there is, of course, you, you're right. There's that huge onrush of images, and those are the things that stick with us, even if they lay buried in the memory for a long time. But what about that moment when you sort of transitioned to actually beginning to understand narrative? You begin to understand that words are going to make a story. I remember loving The Owl Who Was Afraid of the Dark because it was so satisfying. And it is a particularly, I think, well-structured book, now that I obviously read it again, um, because each each chapter is a little adventure and he, and he comes to realise that dark is... Um, friendly dark is whatever instead of being an owl who is scared of the dark which is again just the perfect conceit anyway um, so each chapter is sort of stands alone but then it builds to this you know the greatest excitement of all in the in the dark and dark is and it turns out dark is super and everything <laughs> is tied together and it's all lovely um, and even as a child I remember that being very very satisfying you know and and, and I remember my son saying it about a very very early age, and he's not he's not massively bright. I don't say it for that reason. It was sort of strikingly um, perceptive for him. He said, "I like I like it when things happen in the right order." Mm. Mm. I was like, "Ah, oh, yes, exactly. Don't we all, son? Don't we all? <laughs> There's didn't... just that grasp that something has to make sense. Yes, and it yeah. has to actually make sense to you, the reader, yeah. not just to the writer." And then, and the, and the resolution has to be clearly in the offing for uh, for a while. You know, not immediately, but the children need a sort of implicit promise that when they're very young, that that things won't just be left open. I mean, good like, good night, moon disturbs me because I don't think there's enough there. But it's it's a very early kind of board, almost, almost a board book, I guess. But he says you know, it's just a little bunny in bed saying good night, moon, good night, chair, good night. Air, I mean, and it's it's sort of, but it's 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 impossible. You have to read it because it's it's the, the, it's the sort of ineffable strangeness about it, and it's kind of dreamy and impressionistic, and it and it just freaks me out because it can't. And if I'd been a child, it would have freaked me out as well because there's not enough to grab onto. She's not quite because it's not just saying goodnight to things. There is this oddness to it, um, and I need to, I need to read about it. I need someone to have written a monograph on it and explain it to me. Well, that might actually be on. you, though. Maybe that's me. That might be you. I <laughs> mean, I don't understand. But the way you're describing it, I mean, there's one of the things, you know, if you think about an owl who's afraid of the dark, you can see as an adult that that obviously has a kind of little bit of didacticism in it. It is about trying to teach children that you can conquer yeah. things that you're frightened of. But the way you describe Goodnight Moon is also about teaching children about their place in the world. I think that's what disturbs me, yes. it's. It, it, I think it does... You are the person to do the monologue, clearly, but mono, monograph. Um, it is. It, 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 
does give you this really weird sense of only being a speck in the universe instead of the centre of it as a child, which I think you almost should feel as a very young child. Then you have to start knocking it out of them as soon as possible. <laughs> but it does it because it's just this. It's just this bunny in this increasingly fragmented universe and I, I don't know why it's got such a hold in the sort of especially the US kind of national consciousness. There is that thing throughout all literature actually but I expect it works particularly as a child. You are wanting to read about people whose lives you'd quite like in a certain way. Mm. I mean I think that probably explains the whole hold of boarding school stories over the years doesn't it? I mean, certainly yeah. Enid Blyton, for me, Storky and Co. was a, a huge... Just that love of a boarding school. I was never going to go to a boarding school. I don't think I knew anyone who'd gone to yeah. a boarding yeah, school. No, no, I, I thought they were all in the past. I thought these were, these were historical fiction, um, completely. Um, but, yes, yeah, so you said anything that obviously gets rid of parents without them dying, I'm quite, I was quite for. I would put up with them dying, it's OK, you know, in a book. But, yeah, any boarding schools just this enclosed world and also this very I mean so much has been written about this sort of academically but to have this incredibly supportive environment full of girls and women teachers was I think looking back part of the appeal because school wasn't great in Mm. real life for me um and just to have these very old-fashioned girls all being you know basically friends I mean the, the old clear bully uh, figure, but just to live in that in that world and all be treated the same and and living in the same way was a great fascination to me. Without ever consciously knowing it and articulating it, that was what I I liked. Do you think that still exists? By which I mean that that stories that are written now that reflect children's experience of going to school um, seem to to have the emphasis on being a lot more realistic. A yeah. lot more closer to a child's well, you wonder, experience. You wonder how much of the success of Harry Potter is down to that very mm. old-fashioned element of mm. just taking him out and putting him with his own kind, which in his case is wizarding rather than um, jolly hockey schoolgirl. So as you as you grew older, mm. then what kind of books began to appeal to you? You said you fantasy was not... You're not talking about, for example, Royal Dull, though, are you? I mean, that's, no, you know, I mean, the vicious I mean, sort of knids high, are OK. High, high, yeah, high fantasy. I'm not, yeah. I never, yeah. I mean, I, Tolkien, I cannot do. You didn't do The Lord I of the Rings. didn't do The Lord of the Rings. We had to read The Hobbit out loud in class, I remember. But that's not what killed it for me. <laughs> I would have hated it anyway. <laughs> it just didn't I, I, appeal. I, whenever I say I don't like it, I feel not liking something is a, is a great personal failure of mine completely I don't say oh Tolkien is rubbish no I'm rubbish for not loving everything well that's one way of putting it but then again reading deeply and enthusiastically is also a question of finding your own taste isn't it and that was also what you were doing yes, as an enthusiastic oh, yes, reader you, you're entitled to your own taste but but never to just I just I just not wanted to bring down the wrath of, of um, high fantasy fans on my head I just wanted to make it clear that if you don't like a swathe of, of something, that's your loss and your mm. failing. It's not ever that that's crap. The other, you know, the thing is crap. What time, what, what point in your life, and I hope it was not when you were little, did you begin to get that crushing sense that all bookworms have of not being able to read everything? Oh my God, I'm not going to be able to fit all this in. I have it only in the last few years really this is 
intimations of mortality once you turn 40, I'm afraid. Um, I don't worry about it too much because I think I've always accepted it at some level. But there are so many good books at the moment. I feel I feel it more in an, in an immediate term. Like at the moment, I've got this to be read pile that is three feet high of things I like top. You know how you mentally divide things into tier, top tier, yeah. total. You know the zero point one percent of one percent I want to read, and even that is uncontrollable, unsustainable, um, and that's that's making me panic. And I'm particularly annoyed because <laughs> I I waste so much time on Twitter and things scrolling through when I should be reading. Of course, we didn't have Twitter or no. social media no. or the internet or anything even we, oh, remotely. We had nothing. We had, we had absolutely we had nothing. And a, <laughs> and, and a hoop and a stick and that a, we might occasionally stick, yeah. be allowed to, to, you know, as we were allowed out into the fields with just a sandwich for yes, the day. The fields of Catford. I yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we didn't have the same kind mm. of distractions. Yeah, it and certainly helped. Obviously, you know, we do catastrophize in later life about how what that's doing to children's reading habits. But it it is an immersive thing to do. And if you do have a lot of distractions, like, yeah. as you say, Twitter, which I know you enjoy being well, this thing, I don't think when people, you know, oh, we must wait for more evidence about, you know, and there's, the, the evidence is inconclusive. The, the scientists haven't yet ruled or the... Well, you don't have to... Do, I'm not letting... I keep my son away from screens as much as possible. We're not massively strict about it but yeah because i know just from myself and my own brain which is a perfectly standard issue brain that my that my concentration span is shot to bits Mm -hmm. by um twitter and all the rest of it and when i've had a week in bed and i've got back into reading i can feel myself getting back to the right pace and the right mindset for doing it and i don't see how my child's far more malleable impressionable brain is going to be any different so I just work on that very simple basis and I don't panic about the one or the other but I also don't feel the need to wait until the jury is in because I think all our brains are basically the same and mine's being slowly ruined. Were libraries important to you? Did you go to the library a lot? Yes I went I used to go every every week or so with dad and I was so lucky because I we weren't rich and certainly people I know now we weren't rich but we were rich for or certainly well off enough in in our little patch um, and we had spare money for books if I if I wanted one and dad used to buy me one a week um, during a time when he was away a lot uh, for work he used to come out because I didn't see him during the week and then he would arrive back on the Saturday and have a book with him you know that kind of thing um, but no we used to go when he was around we used to go to library the local library once a week and I could get I think six books out mm. there which was great almost lasted me a week and one a day and I was a great rereader so there's no problem there but yes that's where I found uh, pony books Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of Nim Elizabeth Enright uh, the William books uh, hanging out with CC loads of things plus the survival manual for children is <laughs> randomly <laughs> I remember how to grow how to grow broad beans and things after the some unknown apocalypse yeah which could be the most useful book I've ever it, it read. may well be i mean we we did uh again not lumping us in together generationally but certainly there was a kind of long period where the nuclear winter didn't seem entirely impossible and that was well, very is, much in our reading wasn't it yeah no i mean i had a little bit of an almost kind of 
mini breakdown as a child. I got so I, I read a poster. It was actually in Dad's office, his porter cabin, um, at work. They had some poster about nuclear war, and this lodged in my mind. And after a year of lying in bed sleepless, I eventually sort of cracked and told my my parents that you know my mum swiftly banished all problem by saying, "Oh no, you get plenty of. It's not like a right, you get. Um, it's not just the four minute warning because I was very worried I'd be at school." It's not just the four minute. You get sort of lot. You know, there's lots of war before that, and and you know that things are getting bad. And I would just keep you home from school. We'd all die together. Yeah, very no reassuring. Problem. No problem. And I was like, oh yeah, that's fine. I just don't want to, you know, die on my own at school. Do you think um, you wanted to be with your books as well? Oh, possibly. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I thought they'd protect me. We hear an awful lot about kids not reading, mm. uh, and particularly boys, actually, mm. and particularly boys as they get older. Do you think that's alarmist, or do you think it is something? Is it something you have noticed? I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm. I think things are actually better than they were in my age when there really was a real animus towards anyone who read. That reading really wasn't the thing to be doing. It was really boffiny and unfeminine, and also, but also, um, unmasculine somehow. So no one was really allowed to read in your child peer group. I think that's a bit better now because there's such a drive in schools towards making books accessible and acceptable. But I think boys, again, anecdotally speaking, do seem to, A, come to it later and then drop it maybe a bit sooner. And whether that's because they're not being catered for as well as girls are because it's still a a female dominated industry I don't know um, I have to ask you is there anything that tempts you to write books for children um, I would obviously I would love to who wouldn't but as any children's writer or, or anyone who has anything to do or librarian will, will tell you kids find you out faster than anything so you really do have to have a a very good idea be something you generally you know that that feeling you really want to get it down on paper you really want to tell a story and be some major and specific talent and the minute I have all those three together brilliant you know I'll, well, hey, you're I'll start screaming but I, I doubt I can muster more than you know one in three of those at best but it would be it would be lovely obviously just in conclusion, there was a book that you mentioned very mm-hmm. early on in a in amongst some other books, and I just want to talk about it because I love it so much. <laughs> so this is real indulgence. The Family from One End Street. Oh. See, I feel that that's a book that some people know about, or a series that some people know about, but does not have the classic status. Do you not think? I, I think, think it should be issued to. Every, I, I think it's the most wonderful, wonderful series of books. You, you love them. Yeah, too. no, I'm, I'm completely with you. I'm just, I've never felt it was underserved. I suppose, um, certainly not the first one, which has been in print. I think probably since it was published in '32. I think. Then there's a sequel, Further Adventures, One Street, which is that the one where they go of, on holiday. That's where they go on holiday. To, I mean, it was like it was written just for me. They leave. The, she's actually clutching her heart now, I should say. Alex is actually clutching I am, her heart. I am. I love them so breast. much. Um, and then, and again, I discovered this probably at 14, so quite a long time after I'd read the book. There's a third one, Holiday at the Dewdrop Inn, where Kate goes back to the countryside. And almost no one has heard of that one. But the, you're right, they should all be published all the time. 
and nobody should wonderful. be unaware of them because they are for a certain type of child and taste. But you know, oh, that's a broad. And it's an enormous family. I mean, I'm an only child, so yeah. it's completely alien to me. But it was that idea of people just in a particular kind of community. Yeah, and it won, and one of the first working class families to appear yeah. in. I mean, yeah. we said that, that didn't get any to her, not quite that thing, but uh, but yeah, she was Eve Garnet was one of the first to write a sort of working class family, just just as a, a family getting on with their life. Um, and she was criticised for it. Um, in the 60s, they said it was patronising, but I've re- um, read and reread over the years, and I really, especially considering she was pioneering it, and it was the 30s. There really is. I can't detect a patronising tone in it. They are just a completely normal family, but in a town, and to you know, a washerwoman and a dustman parents, and it's fine. That's just they're just they joyful are. aren't yeah. they and they managed to impress on me this is a throwaway detail in one of the books mm-hmm. they encounter a man i think on a train and somehow they learn that a green toothbrush is unlucky that's right and i yes. have never had a green toothbrush i should think not <laughs> no <laughs> so it we salute the family from one end never, street you've never overheated an iron either, no, have you? no. Have not no they were like poor lily life rose lessons. shrinking up petticoat oh Lucy, thank you so, so much. The book thank is an you. absolute joy. Oh, you're very and kind. I really hope that you just begin to consider that possibility of writing your own. My thanks to Lucy and my thanks to you for listening. Now you can all go back to your bookworms holes and join us next time on the Vintage Podcast. Mm-hmm.